Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 15 years of law enforcement analysis experience nine of which with Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Before she was an analyst, she was a U.S. Army military officer and a combat veteran. After law enforcement analysis, she worked for IBM before working with Blue Light, where she is now the vice president of channel sales and client success. Please welcome Dallas Knight. Dallas, how are we doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. All right. I am super excited about this interview. I like to talk about folks' journey to get to analysis, and I also like to talk about what folks do after they're done being an analyst. And I think you have both ends of the spectrum and different perspectives, and I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Well, I'm looking forward to sharing it and giving all aspects of my story. Excited to be here. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I don't feel like I discovered the law enforcement profession. I feel like it discovered me. And that's kind of been my career path the in its entirety. But as you mentioned, I started my career at 17 in the Army. And when I came home from deployment in 2003, I found myself on active duty orders under the National Guard for the Nevada Counter Drug Task Force, basically doing an advanced DARE program for eighth mm-hmm. graders. And through that mission, I heard a little bird tweeting in the other room about an Intel position. And it really piqued my interest being that prior to joining the military, I kind of had this goal that I didn't really vocalize about working for the DEA. Now, with that said, I wanted to be an agent, not necessarily an analyst. So when uh, fast forward, you know, a quiet five years or so and being in this position, I'm also now a mom and the agent world didn't necessarily appeal to me, but this intelligence position did. And so I essentially asked them about the position. They said, yes, we're in need of someone. You'd be seated at the DEA and let me take you over to meet management over there to see if you'd be a good fit. So essentially, I got put on a one-year orders over there, and I was coming to the end of my enlistment with the Army, and this was about the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. Things were kicking back up again in Afghanistan, and I had a two-year-old at home, and I didn't want to get deployed again and leave him for a year. So I went to my, at the time, DEA manager and said, I really want a civilian position here. Is there anything you can do to help me out? And he said, well, when and if something opens up, you'll be one of my first candidates. And six months later, the position opened up a civilian spot within the Nevada Haida in the DEA office. And he came to me and said, all you need to do is pass background, which I giggled because <laughs> I'd, I'd hold a top secret clearance since I was 17. Mm-hmm. And I ended up walking out the door one day as a National Guard active duty orders intelligence analyst. And I walked right back in the next day, sat at the same desk, same management, same mission 
as a Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department intelligence analyst. I've heard of folks that do that, but on the tail end of their career, where they'll be a public employee the one day, retire from public service, but then get a contract role the next week. And they're sitting basically at the same desk. So as you look back, though, and you're transitioning from the military side of things to more of the civilian side of things, what are some things that stick out to you that maybe shocked you or maybe you just chuckle about now? You know, honestly, it was a pretty smooth transition. I think it's probably one of the more easy transitions that I've been aware of as far as getting out of the military, especially in a combat military and going into law enforcement, because a lot of the mindsets are the same. The rules and regulations, everything's kind of in black and white, are very similar. It really wasn't until I transitioned into the corporate realm, which we're going to get into, that I kind of went into a culture shock. So, So for those who are in the military and looking to transition out, probably what I've seen is one of the most easy and natural transitions would be into a law enforcement or another type of government type of agency. All right. All right. And then, so you're working for the the HIDA, high intensity mm-hmm. drug trafficking area. And mm-hmm. in, in Las Vegas, what are some tasks you're working on? What are problems are you trying to solve? Yeah. So working narcotics in Vegas is wild because <laughs> everybody <laughs> really? comes to Vegas to party. I know that's so surprising, <laughs> right? Everyone comes to Vegas to party. Everyone comes to Vegas to gamble. And the drug trafficking organizations love to come and sell their drugs, party, and essentially launder their money. So we had a ton of investigations, an array of investigations. And then also being that we were somewhat close to the Mexican border, a lot of the larger organizations that we investigated were stemmed from the cartel in Mexico. So naturally a huge meth problem, but you know, just like any other business, there were pivots into other spikes of narcotics throughout the years. And one that I I know that we wanted to chat about today is around 2000. Oh, what did I say? It was like 2007 or eight, I believe, is when the big oxy problem really happened in Vegas. And then it was a couple years before that, that ecstasy made another huge thing. So it's really, they, whatever's kind of trending, Vegas was always hit pretty hard. And so we just tried to stay with those trends and our initiatives for those who are familiar or not familiar with, with the Haidas, there's several groups that act on a particular initiative that is usually put into place because of an overarching problem. So we, I think we always had a methamphetamine initiative and a gang initiative, but like the, I think there was a club drugs group at one point, but that kind of fizzled out over some time. And then we had a pharmaceutical group, which I believe has stayed in place. So pretty wild in Vegas working narcs for sure. Yeah. So this is going to be multi-jurisdictional, right? So you're going to have local, state, federal agencies all under one roof doing working on these missions. Yeah. So yeah. So at the Haida, it's it's a combination of local, state, and federal. And the federal umbrella that we fe- fell under was the DEA. We operated out of the DEA office, but we had Las Vegas Metropolitan Detectives or Task Force officers that were assigned there. 
depending on the year and the initiatives, we had a couple FBI agents and analysts sit with us. We had an IRS agent sit with us the majority of my tenure there. BAI or Bureau of Indian Affairs was there for a short time. So definitely multi-jurisdictional. I think I worked at the Washington Baltimore Haida, and I think I I worked with somebody from the Secret Service once, which was interesting. So yeah, definitely depending on the problem that you're trying to solve, you'll get different federal agencies and different state agencies in there. Well, you mentioned it, the Oxy case. So let's get into that because that's your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that analyst works. So again, we're 2007, 2008. Yeah. And just tell, tell us what you perceived during this time. Yeah. So during this time, there was a huge spike in people abusing and using oxycodones. And It's interesting. If you haven't seen the Netflix special, I think it's called, oh, darn it. I looked it up yesterday too. I'll get back to it. It'll come to me. But anyway, there's a Netflix special about how all of that kind of came to be from the pharmaceutical perspective and and the doctor. So hindsight, it's interesting to now understand how this problem, we'll call it, came to be. But the case started from a phone call of a friend of one of the DEA agents. And the friend just happened to be a doctor. And she felt like there that her script had been forged or that she was taken advantage of. And there were pills that were being prescribed by in her name that she wasn't distributing. And so as a favor to this friend, the agent looked into it and sure as shit, there were way more scripts than she could ever write in a lifetime that were out there across just the main pharmaceutical company or not pharmaceutical uh, pharmacy companies. So that, and we weren't even digging into any of like the mom and pop shop ones, which there were a lot in Las Vegas during this time that were, were popping up all over the Valley. So What that ended up turning into is us finding this girl who was, I think she was 22 at the time, kind of long story short, when we arrested her and interviewed her, I mean, I'm just curious by nature. I'm like, you know, how and why did you get into this? You're 22, 20. I think she's probably 23 when we arrested her. It was a quite a long investigation. But when we get to this point, I'm like, why and how, like, help me understand (laughs) you. You know, like I'm always like, you know, as analysts in law enforcement, we we need to kind of think like the criminal at times so that we can catch the criminal. Right. And so that was always my mindset in some of these interviews was like, why and how and and what drove you to this point? And she had gotten in a car accident and she had hurt her back and she was prescribed oxy. And she really loved the way it made her feel. And then she got addicted to it. And so instead of using her brilliance for good, she decided to open up an entire illicit operation in her apartment. And I mean, when we started search warrant in her her place, there were high-tech printers that, I mean, multiple printers there, paper just stacked everywhere, scripts that were like printed probably poorly that had were just thrown and she had stacks and stacks of, I don't even remember how many doctors at that point, over a dozen doctors that she had perfected their script, perfected their signature, had them stacked like ready, like mail, like at a post office, ready to go out. And then she had probably upwards of 25 runners going around the valley hitting 
miscellaneous pharmacies filling these scripts and then their payment for doing so would be pills. So she had this whole operation going and then she would sell them and and we I don't I'm like can I say her name? I think the kid. I mean obviously the case is closed her stuff mm-hmm. is out there on the news. Yeah. So I mean I won't say her last name but we started making we blew up monopoly money like like the size of regular dollar bills and we put her face on it and we were like distributing Chloe we called it Chloe cash because we we're just so around the office and we you know joke around the office like oh yeah can I get can I get one of those charts of the organization mm-hmm. I'd be like oh it's going to cost you 5 Chloe cash and they'd go make it on the printer it was funny but anyway oh, she was brilliant she was absolutely brilliant 23 year old that had a whole business and operation going like just an entrepreneurial mindset and she blew it all away because she got addicted to pills and needed a way to support her habit. And then the other thing that just completely broke my heart about her is I I asked her, or one of us asked her anyway, how many pills she was taking per day to support her addiction. And she said anywhere between 30 and 40 pills. (laughs) And that just blows my mind because 30 to 40 pills to anybody who's not taking Oxy before it would kill them. So she was taking lethal doses of Oxy just to maintain the addiction. It sounds like if you just came across her operation, like you would think that's a legitimate business. Not, not, I mean, seeing anything else, but you talked about the equipment and the paperwork and people coming in in and out and the organization of the whole thing. Entrepreneurial, successful business. The only thing she had going against her is everything she was doing was illegal. (laughs) So, so what ended up happening with her? Well, she got arrested and she, I forgot what she was sentenced to, but I do remember one of the agents who worked on the case with me telling me like, I think it was a year after her arrest went to, I don't know if it was an arraignment or what, but she had to go in front of the judge for something. And he went and he said that she looked different, spoke different. She was apologetic. I think she finally got all the drugs out of her system and came to the conclusion like, wow, she's actually a lot more intelligent than what she allowed herself to be. So I don't know where she's at today. Hopefully she's running an empire somewhere because Lord knows she's had the mindset to do so. So in terms of your efforts as an analyst, you talked about the link charts and, and whatnot. What, are, what were some of the other contributions to this case that you achieved? So... A lot of pharmaceutical records were obtained. The big store, like stores like CVS and Walgreens, were fairly easy to subpoena and get your hands on, but the mom and pop shops were hard. And even those, if if they weren't illicit and didn't say, oh, well, we don't have anything, we don't keep record, or we burned them all in a fire last night accidentally, we, the, a lot of those were even hand ledgers. So consolidating all of that information was a big task that I was involved in. And then trying to see how things were transpiring over time, because I mean, people could be, well, I mean, there's different aspects to this, this investigation. Yes, this particular doctor led this to led us to a case in which we also found other doctors that were being taken advantage of. So there were illicit scripts being written. But also through this investigation, we found doctors who were writing scripts under the table and, you know, and getting paid under the table to do so. So we had bad doctors. We had, you know, people who were doctor shopping 
where they would just go around to, you know, five doctors every day and complain about back pain and get written scripts and then go fill those scripts at different pharmacies. And so being able to say, see if maybe I was one of those people who was doctor shopping, be able, being able to put Dallas Knight's records on a timeline and see all of the scripts over time and then see the overlap based on the quantity of pills that they were given and how essentially the duration of how long that script should have lasted me, you would see all this overlap and you would see me getting a script every four days or every three days of, you know, 30 pills of oxycodone that's supposed to last me a month. So that like getting that data in and seeing it in that manner, not only allowed us to kind of see and go after and have the information that we needed to write and serve search warrants and make arrests, but we were also able to take this, I always say across the street to the prosecutor's office, because for those that are not in law enforcement, what you don't understand is the prosecutors don't always take all of your investigations. Oh, <laughs> they yeah, want to win. <laughs> so if they think mm-hmm. your case is, a, mm, I don't know if you have enough information, then they're not going to take your case. And, you know, you just, you know, wasted the last three to six months of your life, basically. Especially so federal cases especially federal cases, <laughs> for sure. So if you wanted, you know, a, the prosecution to take your case, you basically had to sell it to them. So, I mean, I get hindsight now that you have me thinking about it, Jason, maybe I, I got into sales way before I ever thought I did. Yeah. But we put together some very robust charts. But I mean, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So I can mm-hmm. put a picture of this timeline in front of someone and explain a year long worth of an investigation and they get it almost immediately. Versus, you know, the 27 different reports that we all wrote and put in stacking those in front of them, they're going to be a little more inclined to look at the picture. So a lot of that was just getting the information gathered, getting it to a place where we had the information to back up the search warrant, and then essentially getting to the indictment process where we had prosecution on board. And then we even used a lot of those pictures and graphs and timelines and whatnot in front of the jury and grand jury to get them indicted. Was it Painkiller? Was that the name of the Netflix? Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I can sleep tonight now. Yeah, yeah. So I I watched part of that, I believe. My wife watches all of them, so I get them a little bit of confused because I only come in for about a couple minutes and watch each one of them. But one of them was talking about this idea more of a doctor that was duped and somebody was using his signature and they were talking about it. he's like i never thought to even look in the system to see how many prescriptions had i had under his dea number right yes yeah he never thought about it he's like i knew which ones i actually wrote because that's the ones we were billing or that's the ones we were in charge of but i never thought that somebody could take my information and start writing all these prescriptions with it well because why why would you right yeah. i mean in a perfect world why why would you and it hadn't really been ever an issue until the oxy pandemic quite frankly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but it was so it was so addictive and then people couldn't get their hands on it and they couldn't afford to buy it off the street so eventually they were turned into heroin and then and then you started so then you see this transition of holy smokes at least in vegas 
heroin started making a huge rise. And now we have all these overdoses that are happening because you have people who are popping pills who have no idea the dosage that they should be taking to stay alive of heroin. And so you have all these ODs popping up and then, and they're in the young ones too. Yeah. I mean, you got high schoolers who are getting strung out on pills because it's cool. Did you ever hear about these pill parties? This blew my mind. The (laughs) pill party thing. Like kids would like raid their parents' medicine cabinets, show up at a house, pour whatever pills they could get their hands on into a big punch bowl. They'd stir it around and then everyone would go and like pick one or two, pop them and see what happens. Man, that sounds dangerous, but you know, this is there, there's people that eat Tide Pods and I drink know, ra- I know, racing fuel, and so yeah, I guess that would be a thing. If man, that is that is something something it else. It just it blew my mind. So yeah, I mean, you have high schoolers that are getting strung out on pills, and then they're like, oh crap, I my allowance doesn't support my pill habit. And then you had these heroin dealers that were taking advantage of the situation and they'd hang out around some of these schools and give them a taste. And then, and then now they're hooked on heroin too. It was, yeah. So I thought the oxy transitioned to a big heroin problem. We definitely saw that in Vegas. So talk a little bit, you were mentioned yesterday in the prep call about the connection to Boston. And, oh, yeah. and uh, talk a little bit about that, because I got some follow up questions and discussion I want to I want to add to that story. Yeah. So this case stemmed off into, I think, at least two or three other big investigations. And one of them led us to this old we went from a 22 year old to like a 57 year old, another person that you wouldn't think to be running any type of narcotic operation. But same kind of backstory, got her prescribed pills, realized he could make some money off the pills. And he would he would go around to the the pain management places and basically buy pills off of the people that were there. And then because what I and I still to this day have no idea how the nexus came to be between this guy and this young organization out of Boston area. Now I want to go back in and ask the guys (laughs) that I worked with and be like, did we ever like figure out how that even came to be? But somehow there was a, there became a connection and Uh, club penguin, right? They met on club penguin. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. So his, his name was Michael copying. He, he essentially was realized that he could buy the pills in Vegas off of someone for anywhere from 10 to $12 cheaper if, you know, the person he was buying them from was desperate for money and turn around and sell them for 80 to $100 a pop in Boston. So quite a huge profit mm-hmm. margin. And he started trafficking pills to Boston. So the this young organization, they were in college at, I think, Boston University they were they would deposit the money like randomly all of course under the $10,000 reporting threshold conveniently they would deposit money into his account in Boston and then Michael would fly to Boston deliver the drugs come home and then withdraw the money out of his account which was great because i could put all that on a timeline improve laundering structuring very, very easily. So we had the this whole financial aspect of the investigation. But when we we arrested Michael in Las Vegas, I think the guys even 
nabbed him red-handed, either coming out of the bank or with pills in his hands. I can't remember. And we worked with the DEA in Boston and we got to fly there and serve the search warrants in Boston. So I got a trip to Boston on the government, thank you, to go make these arrests. And so these, these, I mean, they were kids. And I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't much older than them, I guess, looking back at it, although I had definitely been through a lot more than them per se, but they're, they're out there and they're just partying. I mean, they're, they were buying it and kind of, and selling it to their friends and whatnot, but really they were, they were buying the drugs to party. I, mm-hmm. I guess it wasn't as, as prominent out there, like being able to get your hands on the the quantities of pills that Michael was delivering to them. So anyway, when we served the search warrants, one of the kids was from a very prestigious, wealthy family. And we, we had had him in one of the interview rooms for a few hours at that point. He was, he would talk a little bit and tell us to fuck off the next and, you know, same, same scenario, different story. And we were like, we heard that his dad was flying in and I'm like okay like you think okay he's flying in like from where well they were from Connecticut and they flew a private jet and out of the jet marches his dad and I swear there was like 15 lawyers I'm probably exaggerating (laughs) there's probably like five or six but it felt like 15 suits 15 suits marching behind daddy-o carrying their little briefcases coming out like thinking okay we're gonna you know how much I'm I'm almost certain there was cash in those those briefcases (laughs) ready to bribe whomever to get little Johnny boy out of trouble probably for the 311th time because that's kind of the attitude he had but yeah I mean he did not get released that day and he was prosecuted to the fullest degree but yeah, that was that was interesting. <laughs> airtight. It was airtight. You pissed them off. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, here's here's my perspective on this. The oxy epidemic was able to grow because someone found a way to make illegal drug sales out of something that looked legitimate that michael couldn't mm-hmm. have gone on an airplane at that time with a bag of marijuana or a, a bag of crack or a bag right. of cocaine but right. he could easily go in there with ten thousand pills and uh-huh. probably nobody at airport security questioned him on it or thought no, anything of it especially the way he looked jason like he he looked like he needed all those pills he walked with it and he walked with a cane and like all like you just you they probably felt sorry for him yeah yeah so you had all this this stuff is like it was in plain sight and nobody even thought to question it and so now you have all these pills all over the place and you get just as you mentioned you get some doctors do some doctors get in on it you get the pharmacies and the drug manufacturers kind of not being so truthful about the addiction level of some of these drugs yeah. Yeah. and you have just this whole shit show of a storm it's amazing and it also brings me to the point is it's bigger than law enforcement it's bigger than the police department right mm-hmm. like whether a, a prescription was legitimate or not isn't really something I think the police department should be worried about, right? Shouldn't. That shouldn't. that's that's a health department 
problem, right? Right. That's 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 whoever's enforcing the rules that go with prescriptions. Police departments get asked to do a lot of stuff, but stuff gets bigger than them. This in particular, this got way out of hand and this was way bigger than the police department. And, you know, the police department only, you know, most of the time they only know how to do so many things. I mean, you do problem solving, but we like to arrest. So they'll try to arrest their way to the problem, which normally doesn't work. But it's just, man, this is, there's so many different angles to this and how this blew up and it was just everywhere because again it's all drugs it's still drugs at the end of the day it's drugs but it was put in a form that was made invisible by any kind of a person of authority to question yep 100 percent. yeah i had brennan long on and he was talking about cryptocurrency fraud <laughs> and like what a small town police department's supposed to do with that i mean that's something that's been law enforcement as well it's just i don't know there's just certain things that i think police departments are good at and can certainly handle and then there's other parts where it's like this is we can help police departments can help but it gets way more than their farther reach is needed than what they can do well and even those types of those issues get bumped up to like a federal level or a joint task force level but they that they are so spread thin and there's so limited quantities of even those individuals that it's like, okay, well, how am I supposed to prioritize what case to work on? Mm -hmm. And kind of a sidebar, but not really. I live in Montana now. And one of I've been getting involved with with human trafficking organizations, because I just can't seem to take my analyst hat on. off, I should say. I still need that fix to be able to help in that regard. And with that, I was just trying to network in Montana and meet agents, detectives, whomever really was involved in anti-human trafficking here in my backyard. Cause I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm helping on a national level, but what about what's going on in my, in my town? And what I came to realize is there are only three, there are three agents One is an FBI agent, two are state badges that actively work human trafficking in the state of Montana. Hmm. Only three. (laughs) So their caseload, I mean, is piles high and they have to prioritize. And I mean, they've, they've talked to me about how they prioritize and, you know, children are obviously one of their main priorities. So, I mean, if they're working a case where and it's sad they're working in case there they know that there's a stable going on and there's you know like 15 women who are barely an adult that are being run around but then a kid case comes up they they have they take the case over the 15 women because ch- children you know it's always the women and children first off the boat right or the titanic or whatever but yeah. the children come first so it's it's hard for me because especially with Montana, it's what the third largest state. And a lot of people think that there's, I mean, the population isn't as high as say Las Vegas. I think there's less people in all of the state of Montana than there is the Valley of Las Vegas, but there's a lot of human trafficking up here because of the um, Indian reservations that are up here and the criminals take advantage of the jurisdiction of being able to cross over into the reservations and they take advantage of the, the, the native American girls as well. So mm-hmm. there's a, there's a big issue up here. Yeah. And you know, you talk about prioritization, you know, it's because 
they got to pick and choose what they're spending their time and energy and resources on things don't get attention until they meet a certain threshold which means there's only you got to reach a certain amount of cases going back to the oxy thing it wasn't until you know so many people died that it started to get on people's threshold i mean i i when i was for prepping for this show i found this stat in 2020 75 percent of the overdoses were oxy related that doesn't surprise me of all overdose oxy related and so until it gets on somebody's radar and gets to that threshold that's why you see like there's 50 cases of something or 100 cases of something before somebody starts paying attention to it yep oh Hi, this is Dawn Reby, 22 plus years in law enforcement analytics and CEO of Excellence in Analytics. And here's our public service announcement of the day. Hire a qualified coach. The process of growth and development is not easy. And quite honestly, many professionals in service-based industries have their wheels spinning for years. It just doesn't work. It doesn't get better. You can only see through your lenses. Hiring a coach is the best thing that I did years ago, and I still have one today. I love the clients we coach. They get results, and those results are real. They build confidence. They create better work-life harmony. They excel in their careers, and they simply have more joy. It is possible. Get yourself there faster by hiring a qualified coach. This is Jennifer Loper. Good friends don't care if your house is clean. They care if you have wine. LEA Podcast recently just had their third year anniversary. And in thinking about that, I realized that I haven't done enough to thank those that have helped me over the years. Kyle McMullen, who's a longtime friend, has designed most of the logos for the podcast. And his website, moderntype.com, sells planners, business forms, signs, and calendars. All profits from the website go to UPMC Children's Hospital Foundation in Pittsburgh. So if you could shop on his site and help him out, That would be greatly appreciated. And then the song that's playing now, the rough and tumble, Mallory and Scott, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, the music and sound bites for the podcast they created. They have a new album, Only This Far. They are touring between Michigan and Colorado this summer. Find their album and their tour dates at theroughandtumble.com. Let's talk about you transitioning to IBM. So you mentioned you were with the Las Vegas PD, Metro PD for nine years, and then you transitioned to IBM. So let's talk about that transition. Yeah. So during my time with the police department, I started using, well, I mean, we all used a handful of different softwares. One of them was Analyst Notebook. And I started going to the i2 conferences, I mean, I think started in like 2006. And then I realized that through networking that I could be an asset to the HIDA by getting 
certified to train the software. That way I could go back and, you know, teach my peers how to better leverage what we had so that we could be better at our job. And so through that kind of partnership that I inserted myself in, almost in a liaison type of role between the police department and I too, I started speaking at some of these conferences and whatnot. And I, I made a lot of professional relationships through the years. And then I think it was like 2012, IBM bought I2. And I believe it was about a year later, I essentially was headhunted and approached and asked if I would ever consider coming over and working with IBM under the I2 team to essentially convey the value of the solution, you know, speaking from my experience and use of the software to other potential buyers. And I, I sat on that for a while, primarily because one of the requirements was quite a bit of travel. And remember, I have a, a son, I'm a single mom at that, at that juncture in my life. And so 2013, he was eight. And I felt like he, I guess what I needed was my son to know why I wasn't there. I, mm -hmm. I put it in the back of my mind, like, well, if he could fully understand and comprehend why mom is gone because she's working and she's doing this, that, and the other, then I would take it into consideration. Well, towards the end of 2013, I felt that, I guess, you know, the stars were aligned, if you will. And I ended up taking the position and res officially resigning from the police department in December of 2013 started with IBM officially like the second week of January of 2014 and off to the races I went. I was scared shitless, scared <laughs> out of my mind because this is like what we just, we talked about towards the beginning. I was very comfortable in my transition from the military to law enforcement. It was the same dynamic, but my transition from law enforcement to corporate America, completely different. People talk different. They walk different. They dress different. They say they got your back, but they sure as hell don't. Like loyalty <laughs> does not mean anything. If it can get them ahead, they will step all over you to do so. And I'm speaking broadly, obviously not everyone sure. is, is this way, mm -hmm. but I, that was the first time in my career that I really experienced a lot of it, an overwhelming mm -hmm. amount of that. But I also learned a lot too. And so I went through like a global and a formal global sales school. And this during this six month school that IBM put me through, I was put into like role playing scenarios where they said, all right, Dallas, you're going to go in that room and you're going to talk to the CFO of Amazon and you're going to have a discovery call and you're going to learn everything you can about them, their challenges, their pain points. And then you're going to come up with a solution that IBM has in their portfolio to position. And I was like, what? I'm going to talk to a CFO, like forget everything else you said. I'm going to talk to a CFO. Who am I to be able to talk to a CFO? I didn't see, I couldn't, I had a hard time edifying myself to someone like that because I didn't feel like I had anything in common with them. Sure. And one of my mentors during this, this point, and I highly, highly recommend having mentors of all different shapes and sizes and flavors, a mentor during this portion I broke down to her and I said, I just, I can't relate. I don't see or understand a way to convey my value and worth to them that they take me seriously. And so she advised that I break down my skill set like to the foundation of it. And 
that was the best thing that anyone could have ever told me was, okay, well, what are you good at? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at putting puzzle pieces together. Okay. What, like, you know, like, okay, I got this bit of information. I got this bit of information. I got a phone number. I got an address. I got a phone, a car. I threw it. Oh, yep. They're all connected. Now I have this runner who's connected to this, you know, top level narcotics dealer type of scenario. And she said, yeah, well, you're a good problem solver. You can look at different pieces of a company and you can see the, the bigger picture of things and you can help understand and even convey to other people how they all fit together in the overarching challenge and even maybe what the solution may be. And I was like, wow, yeah, you're kind of right. And so I, it took me some time, but when I started breaking down my skill set from the military and from law enforcement down to the foundation of what that truly was, I was very easily able to relate and convey that to whomever I was talking to in corporate America. Plus, for all my veterans out there, corporate America loves hearing anything that comes out of a vet's mouth. We're just cool as shit, I guess. I don't know. I don't really get it. So what I didn't think just by walking in the room and saying, oh, yeah, I was in the military and I served in combat, that immediately gave me some street cred, if I will. Office cred. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Office cred. Exactly. <laughs> so the transition eventually happened when I, I, I should say the transition went well when I was able to understand and convey my skill set into corporate America terms. And then I, from there, I was able to build up confidence in myself. And now, I mean, you could put me in the room with, well, I'll stay politically correct and won't say that, but you could put me in the room with any high ranking individual, whether it's in corporate America, the military or public office. And I would have no problem very confidently having a conversation with them. Oh, qualify and apply. That's what that sounds like. That is, oh, you kind of reoriented yourself and applied some new skills, similar skills, but kind of was still able to be effective. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And everyone has that. I feel like we just, we get too wrapped up on the surface level of what we're good at. And that, and like I said, if, if you, if, you know, those of you that are out there listening and you feel like you're having that struggle, just take what you're really good at and break it down to the foundation of, of what that skill actually is. And I can almost guarantee that will, tra that will translate to any field that you are interested or are in to give yourself value and edify yourself. Yeah. Hmm. All right. I do want to beat up on I2 a little bit now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what, what's your weapon of choice? Uh, one of the frustrations I had when I was an analyst is at the end of the day, I needed the ability to have a software where I need just to build a link chart and maybe get my, my ideas in a chart and organize them. And that's really essentially what I needed. And it seemed like what I too, and then IBM was pushing was this enterprise, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever you have, you know, big, huge program. When at the end of the day, I just needed this little program that probably should only cost a couple hundred bucks at most. Now I eventually found it in RF flow, 
which is a mom and pop software, but it always frustrated me that there wasn't this more basic program available from i2 to get me what i actually needed instead of this big conglomerate you know one-stop shop enterprise thing i feel your pain i remember when a brand new license of analyst notebook was i mean maybe two thousand dollars maybe and that was pre-ibm and any other acquisition. I think there might have been one other one, a small one prior to IBM. And then, you know, your renewals for support and and updates of the technology were a couple hundred bucks. So I get it. With IBM, they, you know, they're big box corporations. So they think they can slap three letters on something and increase the price by a thousand percent. And it's justified. I disagree with that tremendously, but I mean, that was just what happened. And then what the potential that I did see, though, is IBM has four, over 400,000 employees. And a lot of those are top of the line developers and code writers and some of the most amazing software engineers that exist around the world. And so what I was hoping to see is the collaboration of those those beautiful minds in what Analyst Notebook was at its core and have it bloom into something even better because, I mean, it's been around for nearly 40 years now and it hasn't changed too much. There's been some minor automation of things and some reorganization, if you will. But from when I, the time I started using it in 2005 to now, it's, it hasn't changed too much. And they've, I mean, like I said, I think the starting price was just under two grand, you know, how 18 years ago. And mm-hmm. now it's, it's, I think, close to $12,000 for the, oh. this basically the same program. So with that said, they, they tried, I'll say that, but in my experience, and I speak just from my experience, I always felt that a lot of the software that was being pushed out or the, the updates or the, the one-off revamps of certain things being rebranded as something else were only half-assed done. And uh, they would just put out par- partial components and the components weren't even really the ones that we needed. So my role within IBM was, as I kind of shared, to demonstrate, like literally live demonstrate the software and showcase the value of how it could help in invest in the investigative workflow to potential users. But I also allow the flow of conversation to go the other way. And I often pride myself on t- and on my self-proclaimed title of being a client advocate mm-hmm. and hearing what the client's frustrations and challenges are and then conveying that back to the team. Sometimes the team was the development team and like, hey, we really need to be able to do this or do this easier or do this faster. And what I would have thought is that they would have taken that into more consideration and what was going on in the field. And there was often what felt like a disconnect between what was coming in from the field and what customers and users wanted and needed and what was actually being pushed out of development. And so I too was essentially treated like the redheaded stepchildren within IBM. We were bounced around to like five different departments. We were under security at one point. We were under analytics at one point. They really didn't know where to put us because quite frankly, I too fit all of them and they tried to put us in a box. And through this movement and confusion, people 
essentially started dying off theoretically leaving because they're unhappy being cut because they weren't making enough money and or being moved to other areas. And I ended up being moved and I eventually left IBM, but I too was bought by Harris Group, Harris Corporation. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're, Harris Incorporated. Anyway, Harris, it's a Canadian company in January, 2022. And from my understanding is they don't necessarily acquire a company to then take it over and insert their people and systems into that company to help it grow. They just acquire it and they're like, all right, you're on your own, ready, go. And, and from what I've seen, that is what has happened with I2 in the last year and a half. Everyone that is that came over with I2 is out there just on their own and I honestly what looks like survival mode. Mm. And the development shop is trying to revamp technology. But if I'm going to be completely transparent, and if you look underneath the covers, they may have called it something different, but it's the same tech that's existed for the last two decades. So I don't know what's going on with them, but the sticker price is is not meeting what is being represented in the software. And mm -hmm. especially with all the defunding of law enforcement across the nation in the last mm -hmm. five to 10 years, it's not footing the bill. And there's there's got to be alternative. Well, the good news is, is there are alternatives. <laughs> well, that's what I was just going to get to. This, this rocky path that you're on does lead you to blue light. So how did you get from this situation to blue light? Yeah, they moved me into like no man's land. For six months, Jason, I had no manager, no one to report to. I was just collecting my paycheck and looking at my email every morning like, do, do I have a mission yet? Oh, I don't? Okay, well, I guess I'll go hang out with my kid. <laughs> it was insane. But I guess for a multi-billion dollar corporation with 400,000 employees, they can afford to do something like that. <laughs> but anyway, they moved me. And so I kind of put my feelers out there just, you know, seeing what other opportunity might exist. And apparently word got out and some old colleagues, actually the guy who recruited me out of law enforcement was at a conference. He was working for another company now and he was talking to my now boss and was like, Hey, do you know this Dallas person? <laughs> and he's like, Oh yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah. And luckily I have an outstanding professional reputation. And <laughs> he, uh, he's like, yeah, I think she's looking. He's like, if, if you're smart, you would scoop her up immediately. And he, I think he probably called me that day. And nice. we had a conversation and he kind of asked me what I wanted to do, which I hadn't been asked. I don't think I'd honestly ever been asked that. I mean, the military tells you what to do. Law enforcement tells you <laughs> yeah. what to do. You know, I was just accustomed to taking orders at that point. Yeah. But I'm like, wait, you want me to tell you what I want to do? So yeah, anyway, Blue, trick. I know, I know, <laughs> right? But Blue Light is a, a smaller tech firm. They've supported the i2 community for over 15 years primarily from a training standpoint, but also as a reseller of I2, they have, I think, I think I did the math the other day, the, just the executive team has over a hundred years worth of experience in law enforcement, intelligence, and military. There's not another small tech firm that can say that there's not another large tech firm that can say that quite frankly, but through when, when I was having my conversations with my now boss, he was telling me about this 
technology that they had developed that was directly impacting and addressing a challenge that they had seen with Analyst Notebook. And I was like, ooh, tell me more. What do you mean? You guys listen to people in the field and then make changes? And so the technology is called Blue Fusion. And essentially the problem that they were facing is the amount of time that analysts and users of Analyst Notebook were spending collecting data from the various data sources, normalizing that data, often doing it in Excel, and then importing it into Analyst Notebook. Now, I did some some of my own research and talking to a lot of my peers, and, and the average answer of my rock star analysts out there were that they spend, after we did some math, approximately five or more hours a day just what I call data shopping, yeah. not analyzing data, not truly supporting investigations, not using all their God-given talent as an analyst, but just data shopping. And so with, with all of that, that really motivated me to make the move and be a part of a team where I actually had a voice and there was a development team in place that could make it happen. The patent holder of Blue Fusion, his name is Marco Cejudo. I will absolutely give him a shout out because I've embarrassed him more often than not, which I'm <laughs> about to do momentarily, because I often introduce him or refer to him as my unicorn, because I have some of the most crazy ideas come up like, well, what if we could make the software do this, that, and the other? He's like, eh, yeah, he scratches his head a little bit. I think I could probably do that. And then a month goes by and it's done. And it just blows me away. So anyway, that's kind of the mission that's going on at Blue Light right now is really understanding and addressing key challenges that are in the field and then making it ridiculously affordable to do so. So with that challenge, Blue Fusion directly connects to the various data sources that you leverage, whether they're internal or external. It could be RMS, CAD, an intelligence repository. It could also be open source records like LexisNexis, TLO, Clear, Deep Web, Dark Web social media, whatever, bring it to the table of what you're already leveraging. They build connectors directly to them and then provide you a very easy interface, one interface that simultaneously hits all of those sources. And then what you do with that data is completely up to you. you now, they started the, the development working within i2. So we absolutely have a integration with Analyst Notebook, but we are completely software or platform agnostic. So if you're a Multigo user, if you're a Centennial Visualizer user, if you don't use any of those and you just want to put it in PowerPoint at the end of the day, then <laughs> that is completely up to you. Again, just addressing that challenge. So that's where I am now. And it's pretty incredible to actually have an impact on the community, the Intel community, by truly listening to what's going on and then being able to help develop software to address those challenges. Very good. You definitely put on your sales hat there. A little uh, bit. I'm sorry. So, no, like that's autopilot. okay. It's funny. As I'm reading this, it says, as I mentioned in your intro, that you're vice president of channel sales and client success. And I'm like, hmm, is there a vice president of client failures? <laughs> yeah, right? No, well, that. I carry that title too. No. It's just not on my business card. <laughs> I like to say I've 
self-proclaimed a new title and that's <laughs> VP of chaos because yeah. that's really what I feel like I'm the VP yeah. of. Yeah, I but. know. Yeah, a lot of analysts. Anybody dealing with data feels that way, I, I believe. So, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's move on. I do want to get to personal interest now. Fascinating. I, it's, I love asking this question of my guests because I just, I'm always surprised some of the answers that I get. And for you, you are a horse lover and a barrel racer. I do. Yep. Yep. That is what I do when I get to take off the analyst hat and the corporate America hat. Right. So how did you get into that? So I think I was like six or seven years old and I found out that my mom had a horse when she was a little girl. So like, I was like, well, I need a horse. And (laughs) I bugged my mom for about a year. And then finally my grandfather broke down and got me a horse. So I won that battle, but I grew up from about eight and through high school around horses. We had them. I high school rodeoed, did some other disciplines within the horse world. And then when I went into the military, I kind of just left that life behind. And when I, let's see, 2015 is when I moved up to Montana and I had some friends up here that were very much into the horse world and barrel racing. And I mean, at this point, it had been 15 years since I think I'd ever gone faster than a walk on a horse. And they're like, oh, jump on, you should barrel race. And I, I got on a horse and I fell back in love with it all over again. And I bought a horse not but I think two or three months later just something that you know I could work my way back into and it just validated what I had already thought that this was kind of a missing piece of something that I really enjoyed something that was truly for me I had dedicated so much of my life to everyone and every around me that I kind of forgot about me for quite a while. And so this was that giving it back to me thing. Couldn't Dallas, you couldn't have picked a more expensive hobby, but you know, they they're like, I don't I don't know how to explain it. The bonds that I have with my two horses that are that I have now, it's just it's relaxing, it's tranquil, but I also get that adrenaline rush and get to challenge myself mentally physically, emotionally through the comp- competitive part. So yeah, I have yeah. horses now and I barrel race and travel all over Montana, been up to Canada and surrounding states. Yeah. And it's fun. So, it's supposed to be fun. Are the horses American quarter horses? That's a yeah. thank thank you for Google for that one. <laughs> yeah, typical typical barrel racing horses are quarter yeah. horses. Yeah. Although you will see some thoroughbreds or cross breeds of thoroughbreds quarter horses in the space. Obviously it's a race. So everybody thinks speed, yeah. but, but it's more than that from my understanding, right? Yeah, it's, it's honestly hard to put into words. Um, so barrel racing, it's more like four sprints with an obstacle in between mm-hmm. each sprint. And there's a lot of like, I mean, you're down to, you know, separating first and second place by a hundredth of a second. Mm-hmm. So the tiniest of littlest mistakes or placement or bobbles can cost you, you know, first or fifth, depending on those things. So, and, and keeping in mind the entire time that you're competing is, um, is anywhere from a whopping 13 to 17 seconds. So in yeah. 17 seconds, 
you're, you can imagine the mindset that you have to have. And so when I say it challenges me mentally and emotionally, I do more work on my mental state than I do practicing with her in the arena. Because when it comes down to it, it's muscle memory. It's my brain making unconscious decisions in split seconds and, and then going from there. And then just the confidence that you have feeds into your horse. And so, yeah, I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on this, but I think we'd have to get a different audience. Well, no, it's still (laughs) fascinating racing a horse because it is an animal. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's going to have its own abilities and whatnot. It's not like a car or a motorcycle or a bicycle or even if you're doing other races, a boat, whatever it is. If I'm in a bike race and I lose, I don't necessarily feel that I let the bike down. (laughs) Right. But I could. I could I could see in this situation where it's like, man, that that horse was good and I let the horse down. Yeah. Yeah. I right. I would I would be lying if I said that I didn't feel that from time to time. You know, am yeah. I a good enough jockey to showcase the talent of my horse? I have asked myself that probably too many times to count. Hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, I have to remember that. I, I do it for fun. I'm not doing it on a professional level at all. So, I mean, the competitive nature comes out, but absolutely. And they have a mind of their own and they have bad days. And sometimes they have aches and pains that aren't on like that. You can't necessarily see on the surface and they don't really show you or tell you about it until they're in the pin and they have a bad day. And then you're just like, what did I do? Like, I don't understand what I did wrong. And, you know, they just had a bad day. Or they didn't feel, they were tired. They didn't feel like it. Their their feet are a little long. Their shoes feel heavy. I don't know. Maybe you ate right before and you felt five pounds heavier on their back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before we get to words to the world, you have a publication coming out. You are going to publish your journal. You kept a journal as a combat veteran when you were in combat. Yeah, my I was literally stepping on the plane to head over to Iraq in the beginning of 2003. My best friend handed me a book, a a journal, and she said, you know, write down your thoughts. So if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have even had it. But yeah, I kept the journal during my entire deployment and I never read it. In 20 years, it's been 20 years now, and I've never read it. And towards the end of last year, I was kind of going through my own healing journey. And one of the things that came up for me was some, I mean, I'm going to self-diagnose, but some PTSD stuff that Mm -hmm. I felt I had locked away in a black box in the back of my mind. And, And one of those things was the deployment. I mean, I was 19 years old in a combat zone and, and a lot of my friends that I was there with, we laugh on the outside, probably crying on the inside, but laugh on the outside about like, how the hell did we get through all of that and survive at 19 years old? Like, that's insane. Cause I, my, my oldest son is 18 and I look at him and I'm like, you would not survive. (laughs) No way. You can barely get out of bed and make it to school on time. Like anyway, so anyway, there was a seed planted in the back of my head, actually, when I was in global sales school in IBM, someone who I had spoken to about the journal made a comment that said, oh, you should publish that. And I laughed about it because, well, that would mean I'd have to read it. And I'm like, I'm reading that. 
So anyway, going through my healing journey and kind of addressing all of my traumas, for lack of a better term, over the last several years, that came up for me. And I decided that I was going to start trans, that I, well, I actually made the conscious decision that I was going to give publishing it a go. But the biggest challenge was going to be transcribing it from my written journal to a computer digitally. And I told myself, okay, well, if you can make it through that, then we'll see where we go from there. It took me summer, January, February, March, April. It took me about five months to get through it. There was definitely one entry that I opened up one day to transcribe and I closed it immediately. And it took me two weeks to get back to it. But I, what the book is set up to be, I give some, you know, pre-journal information and then I go through verbatim, unedited, raw context of the journal. And then I provide some footnotes, kind of a 20 year hindsight of Dallas now looking back at Dallas then and either providing some more context or, you know, kind of my thoughts and feelings on what I'm going through at that point in time. And then I give some post journal kind of where my life went from a professional standpoint, which you guys have all kind of got that one down today, but at the end and then some reflection and yeah, so I just partnered with a publishing company and we're working out all the kinks, but the goal is September for me. That's the that's the month I've had in mind since I started this. So September, hopefully, but I'll keep everyone posted. But yeah. yeah. So what what was the one part that you had to put it away for two weeks? Well, you're going to have to read the book to find ah, out. A little teaser. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> All right. It was it was probably one of the worst nights that that I experienced when I was there. So I'll just huh. leave it at that. When thinking about this, when you told me about this yesterday, I got to thinking going through this process and translating this and and publishing this, understanding that you're publishing this to help others, to uh, just give your perspective and say what you went through and how you got through what you went through. But I mean, going through this process with getting this ready to publish, what what did it do for you personally? And I guess what I'm thinking about is recently I've through opportunities and speaking in public and speaking at funerals and other events have just let go of things that had been bothering me for a long time and have family members that don't talk to me and lost some friends over it. But it, to me, it was this thing that I, after I had let it go, I, it was no longer on my shoulders. So it was a release for me. And I didn't need anything else to happen after that. But the, the idea of just doing it, it allowed me to kind of let it go. And so I'm curious from your vantage point, like, what did you get out of this just by going through this process of getting it ready to publish? Well, the word vulnerability comes to mind. And mm-hmm. I think I think people, a lot of people are scared of being vulnerable because for so long, and especially in the law enforcement and military realm, the word vulnerable is often related to the word weakness. And I don't see it that way, not anymore. And I really feel strongly that for you to be vulnerable allows you to fully process your emotions and get them 
kind of sorted, if you will, instead of being bottled up and often exploding like a volcano. So it keeps you more mentally stable. And for those who are in very at-risk type of professions like law enforcement and the military and first responders, they endure, we endure so much negativity and we just bottle it up inside and we don't speak about it. And Mm -hmm. whether that's because we don't feel like we're in a safe place or we don't have a person or we don't feel like we have a methodology to get it out, whatever that may be, we have to find a way to do so. And so I felt like I was definitely very vulnerable in my journal. I kind of knew that it was going to be raw context. So for me to relive all of those emotions again was scary. Mm -hmm. But what going through it and reliving it, but then coming out on the other side of me, I'm like, look, okay, you're fine, Dallas. Like you just read it. You felt the emotion. There was many times that I cried after a journal entry or I was angry after a journal entry, I felt a lot of the same emotions that I felt in that time 20 years ago, but I allowed myself to feel it. And I think if you just allow yourself to actually feel whatever's going on instead of bottling up, or I don't have time to cry, or I don't have time to yell into a pillow or whatever it may be, you're going to be a lot better off. And there's so much mental instability in the world today. And I just want to encourage everyone to just be a little bit more vulnerable, normalize vulnerability, talk about the emotions and don't relate it necessarily to weakness. So for me going through the journal, it allowed me to see the strength in my vulnerability over looking at it as weakness. So so I got, I got a Dr. Phil reaction to all of this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to be perfect. Right. You're talking about hundreds of a second, thousands of a second. You have to be perfect. And yeah, now going through this. But this process you're going through is 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 not perfect. Right. And I think right. I think a lot of times we we get down on on ourselves if it didn't go perfectly. Right. Absolutely. And so so it's it's this idea of dealing with something that clearly was not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and accepting it and being okay with it. And even at one point, Jason, embracing it. Well, Hey, I please keep in touch. Let me know when this journal comes out, we will have it in the show notes when it does come out and and certainly want to publicize it. I really appreciate you being brave, being you type thing. And so it's, I think it's going to be good. I, I know you mentioned yesterday you're kind of a little concerned with the negative feedback, but I would tell you, don't worry about that. I think you'll benefit and there'll be many people that will benefit from your journal. Well, thank you. And I will absolutely keep you informed. And I mean, it's just with any vulnerability, right? I'm putting my vulnerability out there to the entire world. So listen, Karen, if you're going to be negative, you just keep it to yourself. I don't need to hear it. Well, yeah, well, you're going to get in (laughs) trouble. You're going to get in trouble for that. What was that? Uber, Uber, the DEI person had a, had a Karen program and got put on administrative leave. I don't know. That's a A Karen program. Yes. Yeah. It's, oh, I it's happened, this. happened this week that the person in charge of diversity at Uber was put on administrative leave. Oh, uh, she had hosted a, a, I don't, I don't know what she called it, but it was basically something about Karen and just trying to build awareness 
of that term and how it's used. And it, I don't think Karen is ever used and usually in that context, usually isn't a flattering term, but people complained that it felt preachy and it felt this and made them feel bad and this, that, and the other thing. And so that person that was in charge of it, of their diversity group, got put on administrative leave this week. So, whoops. <laughs> so, anyway, our last segment of the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Dallas, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Your past does not define you. Anything that you have dealt with or endured or experienced does not have to, it does not and will not hold you down and keep you from pursuing whatever your hopes and dreams may be. My career has been honestly a, a leap of faith more often than not and just looking at an opportunity and taking advantage of it. We didn't even get to the not so great childhood and upbringing that I had. So with that said, and where I am today and in an executive position and getting ready to publish a book and having the very fortunate ability to own horses and barrel race, I, I feel very blessed, quite frankly, to be where I am today. But honestly, it came from truly believing that my past does not define me and I can pursue anything that I put my mind and heart to. And I would encourage all of you to do the same. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Dallas. Thank you so much. And you be safe. Thank you, sir. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.